trip, but as, as we were headed out there, we got on, uh, finally, after multiple stages to the trip, we finally got in. It was a, a long canoe, long boat. And it was, it was a, a little bigger than our canoes, but a whole lot longer, and we headed down the river. And, and as, as we were headed down the river, the guy in the back of the boat said, hey, watch for crocodiles. <laughs> so we're going along, and, and as, as we're going down the river, we notice something begins to happen. We're watching very intently the shores of the river, watching for any, any uh, logs or possible crocodiles, and, and, and someone begins to notice that the boat begins to get lower and lower and lower, closer and closer to the water. And so, so we're, we're uh, all of a sudden now, instead of watching the edges of the river for crocodiles, we're watching the boat, seeing the water level get closer and closer and closer to the rail edge of the long canoe. Pretty soon, we get to the point where the level of the water is right there at that top edge. And now we're thinking, okay, forget watching for crocodiles. We're going to be in swimming with the crocodiles here shortly. So, so the guy that was in the back uh, finally, finally stopped the boat, and he says, here, we've we got to do something. We've got to shift things around. And so, so we're all here watching, and he says, I want, I want the, the big guy that's in the middle of the boat to get up, and I want him to go to the front of the boat. Now, we were packed in here. I mean, there was a bunch of us kids from, from the academy all packed in the boat, and, and we had a couple of our leaders on, on the longboat, and, and so like we're all here crammed in there, and we've got to get one of the, the biggest guys, one of our leaders, from the middle of the boat to the front of the boat. Meanwhile, in our minds, we're all thinking, crocodiles, swimming with the crocodiles, not a good idea. So he gets up, and you know, canoes are, it was, it was bigger than a normal canoe, but it was still kind of kind of rocky, and, and the water level's right there at the edge. And so, so he, he takes a step forward, and we're all like very carefully shifting our weight to try to balance the thing. And, and, and we shift out, we shift out, we shift out, and, and, and he gradually works his way, way forward and finally gets to the, the front of the boat. Sits down there, and we all shift back into our seats, and the guy puts the throttle forward, and we take off down the river. And, and now we've got a, a couple inches of clearance, and we're all watching for the crocodiles. Well, well, we get up the river a little bit further, and we pull up to the village where we're going to stop off, where we're going to build the, the new little church. And, and as we come there, we see the, the native kids diving into the river, swimming around, playing, and having a good time. And all of a sudden, what's going on in our minds? Wait a second. <laughs> Our, our perspective was changing. Either those kids are faster than a crocodile, or this river doesn't really have crocodiles in it. And that guy was just messing with our perspective. We never did find out for sure one way or the other, but, but while we were there, they actually took us out into the river spearfishing. They built these, these little uh, spear fi- you know, spears, and they were, well, you know, have you seen the, it's, it's like a giant rubber band, only it's, it's like an inner tube. So if you took the rubber off of an inner tube and you stretch it out, how, how tight and stretchy they are, that's what they'd use, that really tight, stretchy rubber, and they'd stretch it out on these, these spear guns, and they'd go out swimming in the river and, and go fishing that way. And so they started taking our group down there, and pretty soon our group was diving in, swimming around, spearfishing with all the native kids, having a wonderful time, not worried at all about crocodiles. <laughs> what changed? What changed from being terrified that our boat was going to sink and we were going to be eating by croco- eaten by crocodiles to swimming in the very river that we had been scared of? What changed? Our perspective changed, right? 
There was a, a radical perspective shift from one point to the other by seeing things a different way, by seeing people relate to the river a different way. I'm sure the guide was just having a riot, laughing at all of us scared Americans, terrified of his river. We're going to talk today, the title of our, our message is Believing is Seeing. The, the traditional term is seeing is believing, right? I used to live in Iowa, which is right north of, of Missouri. Anybody here from the Midwest? What is, what, what state, what's the, the kind of the name of Missouri? Missouri is the what state? Show me state, right? It's the show me state. Show me, I see it, then I'll believe it, right? That's the way I've just kind of always been. Show me, if I see it, then I'll believe it. But, but today we're going to flip that around, flip it on its head. Believing is seeing. Now to illustrate this, how this works, how many of you, first of all, believe in seeing is believing? Anybody here believe in seeing is believing? You see it, it's there, you believe it. How many of you believe believing is seeing? How many of you just aren't voting anymore when I ask questions? <laughs> All right, the majority of you. All right, I got it. <laughs> okay. All right. Both are somewhat true, but, but it requires a radical perspective shift to go from seeing is believing to believing is seeing. And, and I've got a couple things I want to throw on the screen here. We've got a picture, first of all, we're going to throw up there. As you look at the picture on the screen, how many circles do you see? None? How many, how many see zero circles? All right. Anybody see circles? Does anybody here see circles? All right. We've got, we've got a whole bunch of who see how, how many circles do you see? 16. 16. Those who see 16 circles are correct. So the circles are in between the squares. So if you look at each one of those squares, now don't focus on the square, look at the area between and you'll see a circle in between each square. Everybody see that now? All right. Now if I ask you, if you look at it, how many circles do you see? Do you instantly see the circles? Once you've seen them, do you recognize them immediately? So there are circles in between each of those squares. It's all a matter of perspective. Some, some of you don't see it yet, so we'll, we'll leave it up here for a second. It, it all has to do with the way our eyes work. See, there are visual cues here in this picture that tell you to see lines and squares. It looks kind of like a door panel, right? And you don't see the circles at first because you see the lines going up and down and you see the squares. But if you look, look for the lines going horizontally. Those of you who haven't seen the circles yet, look for the lines that run horizontally. Focus on the horizontal lines running across and the circles are in those horizontal lines. Are you seeing it now? If you focus on the horizontal lines, all of a sudden those circles come into perspective rather than focusing on the vertical lines. And, and your perspective changes, right? All of a sudden, there is something in that picture that is there that you didn't see before. Now, some of our brains are just wired differently. We see the circles, and we ignore the visual cues that tell us what we're supposed to see, right? Parents, you ever had a kid that just is, is wired that way? They're supposed to be one way, and they're just automatically, you know, just, just do the opposite of what they're supposed to do. Right? There's some of us who are wired that way, right? So, so in this picture, there are 16 circles that we don't necessarily obviously see at first. What changed your perspective, what you focus on, what you look at, and it all has to do with our vision. It has to do with the way our vision is. Now, I've got a video here to, to play for you. I want, I want you to look at this video, and I want you to notice, are the objects the same that are in front of the mirror as those that are seen in the mirror. First of all, before you show the video, if, if I put an object in front of a mirror, is it the same object in the mirror that's in front of the mirror, right? 
A mirror just simply reflects the object that you set in front of it. Now, I want you to watch this video and, and see if your brain plays tricks on you. Did your brain mess with you? Uh, do, do you actually believe it was the same object in the mirror as it was on the table? Or are some of you thinking, man, they, they had something else. That was just a TV screen and they were showing a different object. How many believe it was a different object, right? Your, your brain shows you something different than what's actually there. That was a real mirror. There are not two sets of objects there. That's a real mirror there. And what you are seeing is simply the reflection coming back. But because of the way our minds work, what you see and what you believe you see are two different things. What we see is not necessarily what is actually there. And that's how illusions work. That's how magicians do their, their tricks. They, they understand the way our eyes work, the way our minds work, and they, they play tricks with us. So here's the deal. Did you know that there is holes in your vision? So the way our, our vision actually works, there is a big hole in the, in the middle of our vision. And, and so your brain has to take, and it takes the input that comes in, and it merges everything together, and it fills in the pixels in the hole in the middle of the picture, if you will. So, so what you see is actually not a complete picture. The actual visual receptors and, and things that come in has a hole in it. And your mind takes and it fills in all the extra pixels that are in there. Isn't that disappointing? <laughs> it's like, you know, when, when I go to buy a camera, I want a real camera that takes a real picture that has all the pixels there. I don't, I don't want any of this digital filling in, right? You want the real thing so that if you edit it, you can, but your mind fills in a bunch of extra pixels to fill it in. And also, when you receive the image, it's actually upside down and blurry. So, so the, the visual comes in, your, your eye receives all of this information coming in. There's actually a delay. Because of the time it takes for, for the, the light that's reflected off of the object you're seeing to enter, so the light hits that object, it's reflected out, it enters your eye, then it, it triggers a chain reaction of, of uh, neurons, and, and they, they communicate that signal back. There is actually a slight delay in the time for the light to get there and then to translate into your mind. That's why there's, there's a whole bunch of these. If you want to have fun, go mess with your mind. They actually did one of these, these uh, tricks with, with people's minds where they, they make something disappear, and they make four, three or four different things disappear. And then they make nothing disappear. And when they survey the people who are watching, a third, around a third of the people actually say they saw something when there was nothing that disappeared. Because their brains had been trained, they saw a quarter disappear, they saw a handkerchief disappear, they saw something else disappear. So when they finally get to the, the place where he pulls nothing out of the cup and sticks it in there, your brain fills in the information expects to be there that actually isn't there. And so about thir a third of the people said, yeah, there's, there's something they described what they saw when there was actually nothing there. Our, our brains, there's a delay in, in receiving the light and transmitting the message. It comes in upside down, has to, be, has to be clarified, and the hole's filled in. And within that process, there is a place for, well, deception on the one hand, but a place for interpretation. Let's, let's, let's use that word. There's a place for interpretation. When you're first born and you start to see, your mind hasn't had a chance to figure out what everything is. You don't just automatically look out and you see a little block toy there on the floor and you recognize it as a block toy. Your brain over time has to take that information in and through touch, through other senses and things, it begins to interpret, oh wait, this is a block. And so your brain learns, hey, when I see this, this three-dimensional square object on the floor, 
That's a block. That's a toy to play with. And your brain learns that. And so when you see it, your brain begins to take a shortcut and it jumps immediately to the conclusion, that's a block. And so it doesn't take you time to process. And, and that's what we do. That's the way our minds work. That's the way our vision works with everything. So our mind learns to interpret what's going on around us over time and then gives us shortcuts to get there to speed up the process. And it's in those shortcuts that we interpret correctly and interpret incorrectly what we're seeing in front of us. Now, this, this was rather disappointing for me. You know, I, I was always a, a see-it-and-believe-it kind of person. So to realize that my mind can play tricks on me, and, and if I, it's not just if I watch hard enough, I'll see what the trick is going on that the magician is doing, but, but it's actually my brain that is throwing a shortcut, and so I won't be able to figure out what his trick is because my brain is already hardwired and figured out the shortcut, and it just automatically jumps there. That, that was kind of disappointing when I, when I learned that. But it helps us to understand something that's consistently written throughout Scripture. Something that Jesus consistently said in his teaching. Come with me to the book of Mark, chapter 9, this morning. Mark, chapter 9. We're going to begin in verse 14. Mark, chapter 9, verse 14. The Bible tells us, And when he came to the disciples, he saw a great multitude around them. And scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed. And running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, Teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And, whoever it is, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, he gnashes his teeth, he becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. They couldn't do it. Now, now, as we ended last time, last sermon, we, we looked at Jesus came and he asked the question at the end of the, the story. And he said, when, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth, right? And we discovered that that, that really wasn't so much about us ramping up our faith. It's about us trusting in who God is. It's us being in, in that relationship and having that view of him as good so that that he produces that, that sense of trust within us. It's, it's not, not a condemnation, but it's, it's a reality of being in relationship and, and who we perceive God to be is influencing how we will pray. And this story builds on that. This story comes along and just builds on that foundation, keeps on going. So, so Jesus comes along, and, and I want to ask you a question. When, when this man brings his son to the disciples, and according to Mark, Mark says he had a spirit that, that made him mute, that threw him into the fire. According, I think it's Matthew says he had epilepsy. So, so a couple, couple different takes on it. But, but did they believe that they could cast out demons? They had been sent out. Jesus had already sent them out, and they had traveled around. When they traveled around, what were they doing? They were teaching about Jesus, and they were performing miracles, and they were casting out demons, Right? The disciples had already been casting out demons. They had already been performing miracles. Jesus had already sent them out to do that. They come back, and they're all together there now. And this man brings the son. What is the, what is the disciples' mind telling them that they're going to do? They're going to cast out the demon, right? Do they believe that they can cast out the demon? Yes. Can they cast out the demon? No. There's something missing here. Belief isn't enough for the disciples to cast out 
the demon. He answered them and said, notice the words here in verse 19. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Now, wait a second. Wait a second. Now, don't we normally think of faith as believing we can do what God has told us we can do? Isn't faith knowing that, hey, if, if God has done this before, he can do it again? Right? Didn't the disciples have that kind of faith? So, so where is, where is, what is Jesus getting at? Where is the broken piece in this chain of logic? Disciples have gone out and followed Jesus' orders and cast out demons. They come back. Now they can't cast out demons. Jesus says, oh, faithless generation. If you're the disciples right now, you're kind of discouraged, aren't you? I am, right? But Lord, I'm, I'm arguing with Jesus, but Lord, I had faith. <laughs> I came and I tried to cast this guy out. I, I mean, I believed you would let me do it again. You did it through me before. So, so why not? Story continues to build. Oh, faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Verse 20. Then they brought him to him, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked the father, how long has this been happening? And the father replied, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Does he ask the right question of Jesus? Have compassion? Help? Aren't those the key words that we found that when we come to God, he, he answers? When we recognize our need and we call out for help, doesn't God promise to help us? He does. And Jesus says, if you can believe... If you can believe. Now, all my life, I've read this story. I've heard this story. And I immediately went to Jesus is reading his heart, right? Jesus is reading inside. And he, he understands this father is, is doubting, is questioning. And so he's trying to call this to attention. And, the, and then I read it again. And all of a sudden, it just jumped out to me. Wait a second. This, this wasn't a supernatural reading this guy's mind. The guy literally says, if you can do anything. Verse 22. The Spirit has thrown him both into the fire, into the water to destroy him, but if you can do anything, have compassion. And Jesus responds back to him in the same language he's using, if you can believe. He says to Jesus, if you can do, Jesus says to him, if you can believe, I will do. He's not reading his mind. He's just simply responding to where this guy is at. This guy verbally comes out and says, I don't know if you really can do anything, but if you can, please help me and have compassion on me. Now, I say all this to demonstrate this point. Jesus isn't really getting at name it and claim it faith. That's, that's not what he's doing here. He's not telling us that, that if you believe that I will do something for you, it will immediately automatically happen. It right? didn't happen with the disciples, and now this guy is, is coming along, and he says, if you can, and Jesus repeats back to him, if you can. What Jesus is doing is trying to build a relationship. 
how do I know this? How, how do we know that it's, it's not a name and claim it issue with these guys, that it's a matter of relationship with Jesus? It's a matter of, of, of being in a trusting relationship with Jesus. Well, we finished the story. Jesus says, when all the people come running together, he rebukes the unclean spirit and says to it, oh, for, first of all, the guy responds and says, Lord, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Jesus says then, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. But he became as one dead, so that many said he is dead. Jesus takes him up by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. There's all sorts of misperceptions in this passage, all the way through. What they see is not really what's going on. They see one thing, they, but, but because of previous situations, because of their, the, the way they've, they've been raised, the way they think, they are wired to think in a certain path. And Jesus is trying to break that path. He's trying to break the pattern that they have all found themselves in. You see, their, their whole religion was based around on if you do it right, and if you believe it right, then you will be blessed, and God will give you what you want, right? That was the way the religious construct was in their day. If you do it right, if you behave exactly the way God tells you, if you believe everything just right, then God will bless you, and you will receive abundance, if you're not being blessed and receiving abundance, that must mean one of two things. You're either not believing right or you're not doing right. Are you with me? And, and in this story, we have both elements, right? The disciples think they're doing it right. They've done it right before and it works. They're going to do the same thing again. And so therefore it should work. It doesn't work. The man comes to Jesus and he, he calls out with the key words, help Lord. Every time Jesus has heard those words before, guess what he does? He performs the miracle. They've got They've got the, the potion, if you will, correct. They've got the formula correct. They understand if you do this and believe this, then Jesus will do this. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, why? <laughs> why is it working? Lord, we, we, we went to church on Sabbath. We didn't steal. We didn't commit adultery. We didn't, you know, we didn't uh, covet. We, we kept all the commandments. We did everything right. Not only that, we, we've cast out demons. We've done it your way before, and it worked. Lord, why is it not working? Why is my religion not working the way it's supposed to? Jesus responds to them and said, This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. And again, we automatically leave. I, I read a lot of commentaries that, that leave. Okay, so we need to spend more time in prayer and we need to add fasting to it to make sure our prayer is connected enough and, and that will result in us being able to cast out demons. That will enable us to fulfill the formula and end up where we want to be and receive the desired result. Is that really what Jesus is saying here? Is that really where Jesus is going? I don't think so. I don't believe so. The religious culture of the day worked on those principles. It was a mathematical formula. You put this in, you get this out, and it should work every time. And if it doesn't work, if things are going bad, then where's the problem? With you. And you need to do it better, you need to think it better, you need to figure things out so that you can convince God to come out of his lamp and give you your three wishes. Right? And Jesus says wrong. 
Jesus says wrong. In fact, if you do a study of all Jesus' miracles, almost never does he do the same miracle the same way. Almost every time. Sometimes he'll, he'll touch someone. Sometimes he'll speak to someone. Sometimes he actually spits in the dirt and rubs mud on their eyes, right? There's, there's no consistent formula to how Jesus does his miracles, except for one thing. There is one thing that runs through every single one. One thing that I think unlocks the meaning behind this passage. And that he always does it to enter into relationship with the person he's ministering to. Whether it's, whether it's speaking and then waiting for the person to come back and talk with him and having a sit-down interview. Whether it's coming and, and placing his hands physically on the individual who needs that touch. Whether it's calling out a widow in the middle, middle of a huge crowd and saying, someone touched me. He always does it differently, but there's always one purpose behind, behind it all, and that is to build a relationship of trust with the person he's healing and the individuals who are around him. To change their perspective of who God is to help them to rethink the way it works. So when Jesus comes around and says, this, this type can, cannot be cast out by anything but by prayer and fasting. As, as we look at fasting, fasting isn't just about not eating. It's really about a desire of the heart calling out after God. It's, it shows a, a sense of urgency. As, as you study the, the, the early church and, and the way they viewed fasting, it was when there was something urgent and, and you needed to God to draw close to you. You needed to, to be in, in closer relationship to him. You would set aside anything that would, would cloud your mind, cloud your vision from connecting with God. It's not a magic trick. It's not a, a box you check off. It's not, it's not a, a work that you do in order to get God to do what you want. It's a means of connecting with God. It's a means of, of coming closer in relationship with him. And Jesus is making the point to the disciples, it doesn't always work the same way because it's really about being connected with your Father in heaven. It's really about seeing him correctly. He's not one of these ancient gods. He's not one of these ancient gods that, that if, if they're the God of the mountains, then you have to worship them as, as you would the God of the mountains in such a way that it would please him because this is the area he rules over and this is his, his particular set of, of peculiarities, right? And, and the God of the ocean, he had a whole set of desires. Like He likes seafood instead of, you know, steak. <laughs> and so you bring fish to that God and worship him with fish in, in presenting to him. Right? They had all these, all these ancient gods had these different ways, these different uh, checklists that you use to connect with them and to get what you wanted from them. And that's the way ancient societies in the ancient world related to their gods. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 that's, that's not it. I'm going to change things up over and over and over until you get that it's not about a checklist. It's about a relationship with me. And Jesus says these words. I want to come back to these words. He says, if you believe, all things are possible to the one who believes. All things are possible to the one who believes. Anywhere else that you hear that, that kind of language, any other verses you think of, there's a couple that come to mind for me. We walk by faith and not by sight, right? But wait a second. We walk by faith or believing or trusting God and not by 
sight, right? It's, it's interesting. We often misinterpret that passage. It's there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And, and we come along and, and we, we hear it as you must walk by faith and not by sight. Therefore, let go of all these things that you're depending on and trusting in and just walk blindly with God. Is that what the passage is saying? No. On multiple levels, no. Paul is, is talking about the desire to be with God, the belief in God, and, and he's talking about it's kind of a confusing passage, but he talks about in the body and out of the body and with God and not with God. And, and then he, he says this phrase, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Is that a command? For we walk by faith. Is that a command? Is Jesus telling us to do something that we're not doing? No, no, no. Through, through Paul, God is telling us, for we are already walking by faith and not by sight. When we, when we believe in God, when we enter into the Christian experience, we're walking by faith. This is an affirmation of the way you're, you're living, the way you're doing things. It is by faith and not by sight that we are all living in this relationship with God. Paul is coming and he's not giving us a command. He's not reprimanding us, telling we're doing it wrong. He's saying, you walk by faith with God. Your mind shapes the way you think and fills in the gaps and fills in the holes in what your senses bring in. And, and you filter everything through this belief and this faith that you have in God. And all of a sudden, the connections started coming clear between the way our minds work, the way our vision works, and what Jesus says about our relationship with him. Jesus is saying, don't trust your senses in your relationship with me. They will deceive you. They're amazing. They're complex beyond belief. But there are gaps and holes in them that allow the devil to trick you and deceive you. You walk by faith and not by sight. Because our, our vision is upside down and backwards and our brain has to translate it and the devil has all sorts of room to mix up our interpretations. And so Jesus comes to us. And he says, I want you to see clearly a revelation of who the Father is. I want you to see the Father's character. I want you to, to walk with the knowledge that God is love. So that no matter what you see, no matter what you hear, no matter what your senses tell you, your, your belief that your God is a, a God of love will translate and filter everything that's coming into you. It will transform the way you receive information. And and that's why Jesus does things the way he does. That's why he enters into relationship. He's trying to change our perspective of who God is so that our mind will translate and filter what our senses are telling us and convert everything into the image of a God of love, a God who desires to be in relationship with us, a God who, who isn't giving us a checklist in order to see if we missed one to keep us out, but is giving us a relationship to draw us to himself in an eternal relationship with this God of love. And then, or excuse me, then Hebrews kind of caps the whole thing off. Faith is the evidence of what? Things unseen. Faith is what comes and translates that which we can't see. It takes the hole in our vision that causes us to receive a distorted image, a deceptive image, that causes us to, to see a God of, of, judge, of, of negative judgment, of condemnation, 
a God of wrath and hatred, a God of, of evil vengeance, and it translated and converts it and turns it around into a God of love, a God of mercy, and a God of grace. See, faith is the thing that God gives us. It's, it's that view of himself as a God of love. It's a revelation of his true character that then translates everything we read and everything we see to truly interpret God through the lens of who he actually is. And that's why our relationship has to be by faith and not by sight. Because the devil is constantly throwing all these illusions at us to deceive us into believing that he's not a God of love. There was a young guy in California, grew up in a, a pastor's home, but he was fascinated by science. And, and as, he, as he grew up, he wanted to study science. He wanted to figure out the nature of the universe. And so he began to study science. And, and, and he, he went through his, his high school years, went through his undergrad years, and he decided he wanted to go and he wanted to, to get his PhD in science. And as he studied and as he learned, he studied himself right out of belief in God. He embraced atheism. And so he, was, he got into science and he was studying more and more and, and, and he was looking at, he describes it as, he, he was looking at the pixels of the universe. He wanted to see all the fine details, the fine spots of, of things in the universe. And in, in his book, Believing is Seeing, if you're interested, I, just, I was just reading it this last week, it's, a, it's an amazing book. His name is Michael Gian. Believing is seeing is the book. It's, a, it's an amazing story. So, so he, he comes through, he, he gets to the place where he wants to study and further get his PhD, and he's, he's studying the, the minutiae, the, the pixels of the universe, if you will. And, and all of a sudden, in the scientific world, there was, there was a discovery. As he's looking at the stars and the universe and they're studying it, they discovered that the universe is not simply random, that there is a design to the universe, that there are three D dimensions to the different galaxies out there, and they are shaped, and they are designed, and everything sort of, and it rocks the, the scientific world. Wait a second, everything's not just, just random out there. There is a design to this whole thing. And so he thought to himself, well, I can't just study the pixels. I gotta, I gotta zoom out a little bit. And so he went to his, his uh, doctoral uh, professor, and he, he said, hey, can I, can I switch things? And he says, no, you have to talk to the chair of the department. This isn't normally allowed. And so, so he went to the chair of the department and said, hey, can, can I zoom out? I want to I broaden my scope for my PhD. And the guy said, well, we don't normally do this, so if you want to do this, you're going to have to, and he named off like three of the hardest classes that the university offered. So he said, all right, I, I really want to do this. So he takes three of the hardest classes that the university offers, and he ends up being able to pass them all, so they approve him to broaden his scope. And he studies more and more deeply, and, and he begins to broaden his scope even more. And, and, and now he's taking three different, um, oh, come on, the term just left me. Three different, um, uh, not majors, um, not emphasis, but three different areas of expertise within the, the, the practice, that were within, within the realm of, of science. So he's, he's studying physics, he's studying um, a Astronomy, and, he, and, and there's one other thing. And he keeps, anyway, he keeps broadening it out. He, he keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and, and, and studying more and more comprehensively until all of a sudden it hits him one day. There has to be a God. And this is what brought him to that conclusion. First of all, the design just rocked his world. That the fact that there was design to these galaxies, that there was shape and dimension and, and, and things weren't just random out there. And then, then he began to study it. And as he was digging in, that he, he found that as, as he was looking at this bigger, broader picture, that what they were seeing was, was not all that was there. 
And, and uh, several other scientists throughout, the, throughout his studies begin discovering these things, and, and, and they begin building on this, this concept. They realize that there is, is something out there that they can't see. And so they call it dark matter. And they're still trying to figure out what dark matter is. And then as he studies further, he finds that there's this, there's this thing called dark energy. And as they study further and further, they can't really figure out exactly what it is. But, but they realize that 95% of the known universe or the, the, the universe that they're, they're studying is invisible to the human eye invisible to the human eye. As, as a scientist, he came up with, with the notion that seeing is believing. I have to see it, I have to test it, I have to prove it, and only then will I believe it, right? Scientific method. See it, test it, prove it over and over and over, and then believe it. And now he realizes, now thrown before him as he's studying the nature of the universe, that 95% that of what is out there we can't even see. And how am I going to deal with that? We can't understand the 5% we do know, really. Right? We have a very limited grasp and a very limited explanation on the 5%. And now 95% of what out the, is out there is invisible to us. And his perspective all of a sudden shifted and changed. By the way, those of you who, who grew up, uh, who, who loved watching like ABC News and the different, different news stations and things, he actually ended up being the, the science correspondent for a ton of the different news stations throughout his, his career. And so they would bring him on and they would ask him about science and explain it. And, and now he tours the, the, the United States. He left his, his professorship at Harvard to do television full time. And, and now in, in addition to some of what he's doing, he travels the US and he, he, he lectures to science students. And the, the two questions he gets all the time are this. Do you truly believe in everything the Bible says? And second, do you think science has the answers for everything? Only he doesn't answer the question. He just says those are two questions, so I have to finish the book. <laughs> Somewhere later in the book that I haven't got to yet, he, he must hopefully answer those questions of what he believes. But his perspective was changed as he came into contact with the God of the universe through his creation. He went through this journey, a, a little information led him not to believe in God. And as he got deeper and deeper and deeper and expanded his study further and further and further out, he realized that our human minds are so limited. Our, our human understanding is so limited that there has to be something more in the universe. There is bits and pieces of evidence all around us that show us that God is there. He is real and that he is good. Our perception may be distorted. Our perception may be open to deception, but there is one bit of good news. God's is not. God sees you exactly how you are, and he loves you as you. God knows you. He knows who you are, and he doesn't have a hole in his vision. He doesn't have a hole in his understanding. He knows exactly who you are, and he loves you, and he embraces you. And Jesus came down here and said, I know you've got all these holes and flaws in your vision. I know before you can see clearly, you must first believe. And so I have to demonstrate for you that God is a God of love. I have to demonstrate for you the character of God to reshape the way you think. I have to show you that God is truly a good God, that God is a God of goodness, so that everything you see will be filtered through that lens, a lens of a God who is good, 
a lens of a God who is gracious, a lens of a God who embraces you in relationship, who is different than all the gods we have built for ourselves. As you leave today, I want you to, to leave with the words of this song ringing in your ears. And this week, be intentional. Be intentional about thinking about the goodness of God and let it shape your seeing. Let's stand as we close. fellowship of the Holy Spirit. May the goodness of God run after you all.